Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. This is Phil. Canadians like nothing more than to tell you about Canadian stuff. Like, did you know that William Shatner is Canadian? Did you know that Canadians invented the snowmobile, the snowblower, ice hockey, and table hockey? To say nothing of the light bulb, the telephone, and canola oil? And how about poutine? Arguably Canada's greatest gift to the world. Don't even get me started on the Avro Arrow. Canadians love to tell you just how very Canadian they are, and JF and I are no exceptions. So, in this episode, as we discuss Algernon Blackwood's classic weird story, The Wendigo, we focus on what we take to be its real main character, the Canadian boreal forest. Of course, it's about the Wendigo, a figure of Algonquin lore that possesses human beings and transforms them into ravening, man-eating monsters— But in this episode, J.F. and I suggest that the Wendigo is the personification of the northern taiga, a fathomless stretch of trees, lakes, bogs, and ancient weathered granite that still, every year, seduces and swallows up unwary travelers. It's not right to say that we grew up in that forest, because really, hardly anyone does. You grow up at the fringes of it, in the shadow of it, in tenuous communities scraped out of the vast granite floor of the Canadian Shield, or you feel its looming presence in camping trips or visits to a family cottage. As Glenn Gould says in his radio documentary, The Idea of North, it remains a convenient place to dream about, spin tall tales about, and, in the end, avoid. But it is always there, casting its shadow, It's possible that Canadians go on about their national identity, because deep down they suspect they don't really have one. But if we do, it is formed by the absent presence of what we call the bush. And you know what else Canadians have accomplished? The Weird Studies Patreon is what, assholes? Okay, that came off a little strong. Uh, I'm sorry. We're really proud of the stuff we're making for our patrons. Exclusive episodes of the show, plus a steady stream of new essays on sundry topics, including The Great God Pan, Madonna's Like a Prayer, What Pro-Wrestling Kayfabe Has to Do with Magic, and a version of the I Ching that reads like it was written by J-Rock from Trailer Park Boys, which, by the way, another great Canadian accomplishment. We hope you'll join us on Patreon, where you can expect lots of great new content, Canadian or otherwise. And if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that shows like ours, that keep it relentlessly real, don't grow on trees, and need your support to continue. If you've already joined our Patreon, or even if you're just listening to this right now and considering it, thanks a bunch.
I was just at the cottage. My uh, my in-laws own a little shack near, uh, well, in Flinton, Ontario, which is a very rural little community, about halfway between Ottawa and Toronto. And they have just a little cabin. They just had a well dug, but, you know, this is very recent. And they just got Wi-Fi. Which is means that like- really up at the cottage if there's Wi-Fi? Does it count? Well, this is, if you were to see this place, you would... There's no other word to define what this place is. Well, but Americans cottage. would say cabin. <laughs> right. Minnesota is almost like Canada, or at least Ontario, in having a uh, a rustic summer house culture. Uh, but but in Minnesota and Wisconsin and such, they, they say up at the cabin, whereas we say up at the cottage, but it's the same thing. Right. I like cabin better. Cottage sounds, um, you know, cottage, it's a Britishism that uh, we've kept here in Canada, the cottage. Yeah. You think of a little garden yeah. gate and gingerbread on the house and right. an actual gingerbread house. Thatch. Thatch. Thatch on the roof. Yeah. yeah. Peasants in the fields. Moss on the rocks of the house. Yeah. I want to. I want to live. I want to live there. Yeah. This is. This is not the place I was at. No. This is not where I was. <laughs> no. No. And it's definitely not the kind of place that is imagined in Algernon Blackwood's short story, The Wendigo, which is it which isn't. is what we're talking about today. Yeah. The, exactly. Where Where I was was a little bit closer. And let me tell you, they didn't um, have fucking Wi-Fi in uh, Fifty no. Island Water. No, they did not have Wi-Fi. And it turned out a little different if they did. Just saw the Wendigo lol texting your friends and right. <laughs> just um, take a selfie, selfie with, with the exactly <laughs> yeah the Wendigo in the back. <laughs> um, my in-laws' cottage is um, in the midst of a fox invasion, and I got to hear fox cries for the first time last year, and I heard them again this year. Have you heard a, ever heard a fox make a sound? No. It's very chilling. It sounds like. Uh, it sounds like a banshee. Hmm. You know, you imagine a kind of like the ghost of a woman who died in giving birth to a child. Or a demon. And she's oh. and she's just out there in the moors screaming her ass off. off. <laughs> ass out. <laughs> screaming her screaming her ass off. Um th- that's what I think, a fox I think sounds out like. is a better preposition in this context because it's more violent. Screaming yeah, her ass right. out. Just like scream is so hard her ass turns inside out. Oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> which which brings us to Game of Thrones, which I've been watching. Oh, shit. And we, we were just talking about that before the show. And you mentioned that Game of Thrones didn't work for you. Even though it's the kind of thing that normally would work for me. It normally would you like, you love fantasy. Northern fantasy shit. Yeah, I love that. Your point was that uh, Game of Thrones failed for you in the mood department. Yeah. Can you explain well, that? And, and, and me bring, segue us back into yeah, yeah. Algernon Blackwood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, that would be typical of me. Just go off for 45 minutes about Game of Thrones and be like, what are we talking about again? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah Algernon exactly. Blackwood. Uh, this is a callback to our H.P. Lovecraft episode where we talked about uh, Nier Lothotep and another piece of his where he wrote about how he writes his stories. And he says... Mood is key for him. It's the main thing. And we talked a lot about how mood is this kind of atemporal thing. Moods are weird, as you said in the show. And um, in many ways, a story is simply the unspooling of a mood, this atemporal manifestation in our emotional life, uh, an unspooling of that instantaneity into 
narrative sequence, in other words, into time. Uh, and so, you know, story writing is really just almost this act of unspooling or un unthreading a mood. And I love that idea. And it explains why I love this story, Algernon Blackwood's The Wendigo, so much because the mood is so perfect. It's so well done. Um, but it also explains why I don't particularly like uh, Game of Thrones because to me it was, um, it's fantasy, you know, it's, it, there's dragons and shit, but like, it doesn't have the mood of fantasy. Actually, it's kind of funny at, well, to me at any rate. And I, I feel somewhat vindicated in that by uh, hearing people talking about um, the, the Game of Thrones time, like talking about medieval, the medieval period in yeah. Europe, almost as if they think that Game of Thrones actually happened. Yeah. Which, you know... In a way, it's sort of pardonable because it's sort of like, yeah, but the politics and the the kind of very um, earthbound cruelties, uh, cruelties with no mystery to them, to me, uh, they're just very earthbound cruelties, this Genghis Khan shit, you know? Uh, yeah. That to me does not have – and you can have white walkers and you can have magic and, and so on, but it doesn't really change the character, which to me feels very prosaic. It doesn't have that little whiff of the, the eldritch to it. At least to yeah, me, that's just my opinion. No, I agree. I'm, I'm the reason we're talking about Game of Thrones. I mean, the series is finished now, but um, I'm just I'm watching it for the first time. I'm in the middle of the second season. Uh, I totally agree with your critique, even though I'm enjoying it the way one might enjoy a daytime soap opera. Like I'm enjoying it. Um, I'm enjoying knowing, you know, finding out where the characters will end up, etc. But I do agree with you that it. But I think that what they tried to do in Game of Thrones is they tried to give give each region its own mood. Hmm. So, for instance, when you go across the narrow sea and the dry lands and the steppes or whatever, you get this one mood and this one color palette. And you go into the north, you get this different hmm. color palette. And you go into uh, King's Landing, and you get another palette. And it, it looks cobbled together. The world doesn't hold. And I think that. They misunderstand something that Poe uh, actually wrote about, like unity. I don't remember what he called it, unity of purpose or unity of something in his writings about poetry, that there should be one one idea per work and an idea and art is a mood. Like that's what an idea is in art. It's it's when we say mood, we mean idea, aesthetically expressed idea. So, but of course, a mood is more like a complex of ideas or complex of of feelings and and ideas mixed together, but it's like it's a compound. It's a exactly. Um, whereas um, in Game of Thrones, they don't go for one overarching mood. And in weird fiction, um, the reason why a lot of great writers of weird fiction, whether it's fantasy or or otherwise, I mean, I'm I'm rereading the works of Fritz Leiber, who wrote the Fafford and the Grey Mouser series of pulp fantasy adventures. Have you ever? Heard of these? Heard of them, but never back, read them. Yeah, back in the 30s. Fantastic stuff. It's amazing. Um, he, he's one of the great founders of the weird as well, one of the great masters of the second generation along with uh, Lovecraft and all them. So uh, one of the things these guys tend to do is they tend to write shorter works. Like Algernon Blackwood wrote almost exclusively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively wrote short stories. And the reason why the short story format works mm. for the weird is because the weird is... is uh, I wouldn't say the weird is a mood, but the weird is a kind of um, are not kind of archipelago of moods. You know, mm. it's, a, it's a, it, they all belong together mm. in this weird place. And you, 
and it's really fragile. It's very easy to lose it. Like you think of an author like Stephen King, where he has moments of weirdness in his books, but they're always counterpointed or like counterweighed by long periods of normalcy, of banality that act as a counterweight to the weird moments. And then the weird moments feel weird because they 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 kind of invade our world. But it seems to me like the great masters of weird fiction always try to make the banal just as weird as the as the supernatural so that the whole thing becomes permeated by this weird mood. And that's what Algernon Blackwood accomplishes. It's weird to compare Algernon Blackwood's short story, The, the Wendigo, to The Game of Thrones, which is a sprawling series of fantasy novels. And I, I haven't read the novels. I just watched the show. But the, the point is that in The Wendigo, you have a very specific, very well-defined and very palpable mood, which is really what you take away from it you know, at the end is what you you put the story down and that's what stays with you and that's what changes you whereas i don't think you could say the same about a lot of uh, mainstream storytelling styles so i agree with that so what is the mood of the wendigo it is the mood of the northern ontario woods yeah it's really a i think very successful attempt to compose a story that will set in prose the feelings that are aroused in you when you enter this almost limitless taiga uh, forest, the, the boreal forest of northern Canada, which is the landscape that I grew up in. We could say we, we both grew up in it. Does it extend to Ottawa? I guess it kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I was, it surrounds. I'm, it well, surrounds I'm in the middle Ottawa. of the Canadian Shield, and we had a cottage up about an hour and a half north of here. In yeah, Quebec. yeah. I, I just spent some time in Sudbury and around there, and um, I feel like that it extends down here for sure, definitely. Mm, the same flavor, the same mood. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the Laurentians are nor boreal forests, so. And I think this is also one aspect of like cottage culture that actually becomes very important is that even if you live in a bland suburb of Toronto, if you have a cottage or your parents have a cottage or someone in your family has a cottage that you go up to every summer, even though cottages are themselves little civilized places dotting the northern landscape, you know, it's not like you're roughing it in the bush when you go up to your cottage. Even so, like you're a little closer to that boreal forest uh, and you get a, you get a contact high from that. So this is like a very widespread Canadian thing and it doesn't, you don't have to be from the North to kind of have this sort of sense of what that mood is. Like most of us growing up in Ontario had some experience as kids, like driving North, maybe on uh, Highway 17. There's a particular feeling and I experienced it a couple of years ago when I came and visited you and Leslie. You know, I had a few extra days to myself and I was visiting my mom who lives in Port Perry, which is not an eldritch place at all. But I had a few days on my hand and I drove north and spent a night at Sudbury where I grew up. First time I've been there since my dad's funeral, which was about 20 years ago. And that was a strong emotional experience. I'm not going to go into it, but suffice it to say, you know, it really reinforced a sense I had that. A genius Loki, which is something we've talked about on the show, you know, a spirit of place mm -hmm. 
a spirit of place that always seems to be wanting to take some corporeal form to be embodied. And we'll get around to talking about that, I'm sure. Uh, that sense of an almost palpable genius Loki hit me very hard going back to Northern Ontario and driving north from Sudbury up to Timmins, and then eventually making the big loop around and coming down to Ottawa to visit you. Yeah, along the Ottawa River there, it's pretty magical when you're coming down through Mattawa yeah. and oh, so Deep pretty. River. Yeah. But, you know, going up from Sudbury to Timmins, like, after a while, you know, there's a few turnoffs to um, campgrounds that people go to, little cottage places. Once you get up above beyond halfway from Sudbury to Timmins, it's really the deep nothing. You know, just mile after mile after mile after mile of totally unmarked forest. And when I say unmarked, like... If you habituate yourself to a certain kind of landscape that I think of as being, um, to put it in Deleuzian and Guattarian terms, the deterritorialized, yeah, right, the 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 opposite of a striated space, I guess, a smooth space. The, these are the spaces where nomads dwell, right, and nomad doesn't have to be taken literally here, but they're spaces like deserts. Nomads can make themselves at home in deserts. For the nomad, the desert is not a trackless, blank expanse. Um, the desert is alive with portents and meanings that are invisible to that of the civilized city dweller, right? So the civilized city dweller dropped into the desert is going to get lost and, and, and going to die. The nomad knows how to make themselves at home in that. Likewise, a sailor, uh, somebody who's been on the high seas for their entire life. You know, the sea is not a trackless waste, but a place that has roads and paths as distinct as the road running out in front of your house. But they're a specialized class of person for whom the ocean has distinctions and meanings. But that's not that's not to say that to the nomad, the sea manifests as the city would for a city dweller. For the nomad, home is always a state of movement, right? Yes. Home is always in a state of flux and movement, and that's where you feel at home in having no yeah. home. In, in because the way it's like city knowing how to it. move through this yeah. fluid territory. Is home. That's what home yeah, is. That's it's what knowing, home is. How, knowing how to move. It's very yeah. different from the sedentary, you know. Yeah, um, knowing where to move. It's one thing to come from the actual, I mean, north is a very relative term. And, and in Canada, there's a whole new academic discipline um, that's all about nordicity, nordicity in French Canada. It's really big right now. There's a lot of explorations about what that means. And North is obviously a relative term. Like I'm a Southerner to you who come from Sudbury. So you're like, no, the Wendigo is about Northern Ontario. It actually is about Northwestern Ontario, which is even more rustic than right. the Sudbury area. And yeah, I, I went up to Timmins and they were like, oh, are you from around here? Yeah, I'm Northern Ontario. And they're like, where are you from? Sudbury. And I could see and look in their eyes. They were like, that's not North. Yeah. And then to people from Iqaluit, the, we're, we're Southerners, you know. But the yeah. thing is that Canadians, in an absolute sense, all right, all Canadians are Northerners, just like people who live in Maine are Northerners. We live in a place of, you know, climactic extremes, uh, cold winters and some short, humid summers. There's a spot at my, my dad's cottage where I spent a lot of my childhood. There's one direction I can face that I know that in that direction, if I kept walking in that direction, I would not hit civilization again. Exactly. And it's only about an hour and a half away from the capital. 
So that nomadic smooth space, that space of um, of movement and flux, even if you're an urban Canadian, is what you were kind of saying there, we're all yeah. kind of haunted by that nomadic space. Yes, exactly. That yeah. is what I meant to say. Yeah. Just as I think people who live in Maine uh, and or parts of northern New York uh, would feel the same, you know, it's not a, a nationalistic thing. It's just it's a no. geographical reality. So in a sense, the like the Wendigo... Uh, the story, which was written by a British guy who came to Canada and worked here for a while and, and got to s- experience this landscape. Uh, for, for me, at least, when I read The Wendigo, it kind of captures something about what it is to come from the north in a very general sense. And mm-hmm. of course, the further up north you go, the more palpable and immediate that mood becomes. Yep. Um, and that was what I found on my drive was just once I was getting to the bits where like there's no gas stations, nowhere to pull off and pee. You know, at some point I'm like, I really need to go. And I just pulled off and I was like, oh, I've got to get behind a tree so nobody sees me peeing. And then realizing I haven't seen a car in like an hour. Like there's no one here. I'm just like, you know, peeing glorious and free in that <laughs> like in full view of the highway. Right. I felt like Omega Man or some shit. And it yeah. was like, and it's just like the trees just go on forever. And you have the same feeling of somebody from a sedentary civilization looking upon a desert or looking upon an ocean. Um, it's the same thing, looking at this ocean of green, this ocean of uh, spruce and pine trees extending basically forever. Yeah. Uh, like for all he- intents and purposes, forever. And this is the mood that Blackwood's story, The Wendigo, exists to capture. That yeah. story is an attempt to embody that mood. And it's kind of a doubled movement because for Blackwood, the Wendigo, clearly if it means anything, at least if it means anything rationally, the Wendigo is the personification of the North Woods or particularly a certain human relationship to that North Woods, a certain feeling you get in entering those woods. Yeah. But then, yeah, I, then again, at the same time, neither Blackwood nor I want to say that's what the Wendigo is, as if you could just very neatly define something as crazy as that. Um, no, because in a way, the Wendigo is a, an index of what cannot be defined. Yeah. In a way, it's like... But it's a black box. Yeah. It's, a, right. it's a delimitable thing whose interior is forever obscure. So Blackwood, in putting the story together drew from several sources. One of like the most obvious source he drew on was the Algonquian myth or belief in the Wendigo, who is a, a spirit of hunger, greed, insatiable hunger, greed, and savagery, um, a spirit that overtakes certain people in the depths of winter and makes them do horrible things. In another sense, he's drawing on fairy lore, I find, uh, stuff that yeah. you'd find that comes more from Britain. So uh, being taken away, taken into this other world by this force. And I don't know if if we were to take the angle where we're, we're going to study what the Wendigo is specifically, if we really get to what is going on in this story, because I don't see much Wendigo lore in this story other than the title and the name of the creature. Yeah. Uh, because the, the creature, the Wendigo, drives people to cannibalism. That's basically what happens yeah. um, in traditional folklore. But that's not what happens in this in this story at all. What Blackwood calls, or what the characters in the story call the Wendigo is more akin to something like 
the Greek god Pan or something like that, mm. right? Who's a, a personification of the wild, chaotic forces of nature that basically blurs and destroys boundaries, including the boundaries between yourself and the other. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and this this kind of melting away of boundaries, which is reflected in the story in the geography of the area where it takes place, which is, um, I can't remember, was it Land of, was it a Thousand Lakes or what was it called again? The particular haunted region of this forest is called the 50 Island Water. Yeah, 50 Island Water. You can imagine kind of labyrinth of water. Yeah. Um, which is which really characterizes that part of the world. The Northwest Ontario and Eastern Manitoba is basically a land of endless lakes, like a limitless maze of waterways goes on forever. So you can see this blurring of boundaries there too. If you were to look at a topographic map, the landscape looks like lace. Yeah. Like the land, terra firma is the the lace, but lace is mostly holes. Right, exactly. It's mostly water. Yeah. So there's uh, from the air, when you look down on this, on this type of geography, what you're seeing is a kind of a blurring of land and sea. I remember seeing videos of the, you know, when the tsunami hit Japan, I remember watching videos of these waves you know, overtaking cities and yeah. you see cars and debris just flowing like liquid down. And there was this, this blurring of boundaries, like land and sea become one thing. Mm. And that's kind of what's happening in the middle of Canada too, where you, you just, you don't really know what's a lake, a marsh or solid land. When you look from the air, it just looks like, like you say, like lace, like a kind of uh kind of blur. You could never conquer this land and, 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 and you can never tame it. Yeah. I mean, the settlements that are there are chiseled out, literally chiseled out of solid granite. You know, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, I took this for granted because I just grew up there. So this was like normal to me, but I went, you took it for I granite? went back. What's that? You took it for granite? Oh, shit. <laughs> Well done. Go on. Move I, on. I did take it for granted. Um, <laughs> I was walking through my old neighborhood and noticing like, you know, it looks like a little nice little suburban neighborhood with little lawns, but with like huge chunks of weathered billion year old pink granite sticking up out of the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a reminder that like, yeah, in order to get an even lawn, somebody had to blast all this rock into a right. semblance of flatness. Uh, and even so, there's still like these jutting spires of rock that still remain. I remember growing up as a kid, like uh, they were putting in a new mall about a mile from my school. And for a year or two he during classes, there would be just this, <clears throat> this sudden blast. Yeah, they're just dynamiting. Just in order to level out a place where you could put a mall, everything has to be scraped, has to be chiseled, blasted out of the rock. Like it's refractory. It resists the human. Yeah, you can you can fill in little bits of that vast space, but even living in a city, in a northern city that's been blasted out of the wilderness, you still feel like you've been parachuted into the midst of this illimitable wilderness. In, into yeah. the middle, midst of the sea. It always feels very close.
So let's let's talk about the story a little bit, just so people have an idea. Yeah, what what we're discussing here. It's a very simple story. It's about a, a hunting trip. Uh, it takes place around the turn of the 20th century, I guess, uh, 1910, something like that. And a group of people go out hunting. The clients are Dr. Cathcart, who's a medical doctor, and his nephew, Simpson, who's a divinity student from Scotland. Both of them are Scots. And uh, they hire a guy named Hank Davis as a guide. And Hank Davis um, has a kind of sidekick or, or assistant named uh, Defago, who's a French-Canadian. Defago is probably the most experienced of the hunters. You get the sense that he's the most seasoned of them. And Hank Davis often kind of consults with Defago as they try to plot out a course through this maze of lakes and whatnot. And they also bring a, um, well for lack of a better term, a kind of coolie, uh, a First Nations character named, they named Punk. So there's a nice a nice vein of racism flowing through this story. There's a considerable vein of racism in this. This is, if there's a reason why we're, I didn't read this story, like we did with uh, the white people right. uh, or the mesitant, because there's a few sentences in there. There's really no way to read that stuff without coming off as tremendously racist. And also right. the idea of uh, doing a comically thick French-Canadian accent for Defago. Nope. Yeah. Well, they even manage, he even manages to smuggle in some anti-black racism in there. Somehow. Um, even though there's no black people anywhere. Yeah. And you've got racism against French uh, Canadians, racism against First Nations, but let's just leave that aside. Obviously, it has nothing to do with what we're discussing. Uh, but they set out on this hunting trip and they, they split up. Defago, the French-Canadian guide, goes off with Simpson to explore an area called the 50 Island Water, where something happened the year before. We don't quite know what it was. And the rest of the group goes off to another area because there's no moose. They're not finding any, you know, quarry. And so the narrative follows Simpson and Defago as they uh, explore this mysterious area, 50 Island Water. And uh, there they encounter something. Defago is afraid of something. He goes, he's he's really hesitant to go in that direction. He's kind of doing it to prove to Hank Davis that he's, you know, he's brave and he's willing to go, but he's got reservations and those reservations kind of um, bloom and start to come out as uh, Defago talks to Simpson as they, you know, they make camp for the night. And then uh, at night, um, something comes for Defago and... Um, takes him away. I mean, it's a very memorable scene. This is where the mood becomes very thick and present. And so narrating what actually happens doesn't at all give you a sense of what's really going on. You know, actually, there's a distinction I would make here that's a little bit akin to, uh, sorry, to bring up Wagner uh, in an unrelated context, Richard Wagner. Um, it's often said of Wagner's operas, and particularly the last one, Parsifal, which is very, very, very slow, dramaturgically speaking, um, that there's an inner action and an outer action. And in Parsifal, you notice it particularly because the outer action, what are people actually doing on stage? Not much. Not much happens, but every word comes freighted with significance and with right. context. Every word out of the character's mouth has resonances with mythic situations and amplified by the orchestra. And so there's this whole inner world that is articulated as much by the music as by the words that is the true eventfulness of that opera. And if you're attuned to that, then Parsifal is a 
brisk, quick-moving, action-packed narrative. But on the outside, it's almost completely static. And there's something yeah. similar going on in this story. Not much happens. I mean, so they go to the 50 Island Water. They set up camp. And they start off the evening, they're, you know, huddled around a campfire. And there's a wonderful description of the woods as um, the yawning black chasms between the trees that are lit up in the bronze-colored light of the fire. These, these cavernous emptinesses that recede into infinity, um, that these are almost like doorways. Yeah. He talks about these as doorways and the trees as columns that support the doorway. You can see there this this weird territorialization of the deterritorialized. So all of a sudden, the trees aren't just random trees; they're columns of some kind of temple or some yes. place that that is obviously very alien to the human characters. And there's a very then, strong yeah. sense that these places it leads somewhere, and where it leads is some somewhere totally other. And the campfire, the little circle lit by the campfire, is that one little bit of territorialized space that we've like kind of parachuted into the wilds. But they have this oppressive sense of this vastness, uh, the things through the doorways, um, the infinity pressing in upon them. And that is the kind of thing that is more of a mood than it is anything else. It's just, and something rendered so beautifully. And by the way, this idea of like doorways in the woods, I mean, you've got to think of Twin Peaks, right? There's right. a strong Twin Peaks uh, aroma to this. Weird things happen in the woods in Twin Peaks, just as they happen here. But in any event, they start off and they're sort of cheerful and they're eating their catch and singing songs and so on. Devago starts singing a traditional song that has something to do with the Wendigo. And as he's singing it, he smells something. Right. It's right. this unearthly odor. And his voice falters and he falls silent and he starts just staring wildly around at the, the blackness pressing in upon them. And suddenly he's really scared. And Simpson starts getting scared. He's like, you know, what is it? And there's something that Defago is not telling him. He makes allusions to things, but basically he's just like, oh, I should have never sung that song. Later, they fall asleep and they're in their tent together. And um, Simpson is woken by the some unearthly sound and he realizes it's Defago crying. Yeah, like weeping. Crying, weeping piteously. Into his pillow, yeah. And he realizes that he's asleep, that there's something stalking his nightmares that is making him cry from fear in his sleep. And that's a weird touch. Well, the way the way it's painted. It's, it, it's all mood and it's, it's a portent, right? You know? Right. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, the next thing that happens is they are visited by something. And that something is never seen. It's outline. It's faintly visible, so they're visited at dawn. Just before dawn, yeah. Just the beginning of the morning light, enough that yeah. there's a kind of a dim figure that's seen outside the tent that can be seen through the silk cloth of the tent. And the smell becomes overpoweringly strong. And there's this voice that they hear that is uh, a kind of indescribable voice. And I, again, I want to get back to the descriptions of the indescribable, the description both of that smell and also of that sound, because that to me is a really interesting feature of the story. But Simpson is, of course, the point of view character and what he, ways he's experiencing it is this overwhelmingly terrifying presence that is rendered 
almost entirely through smell and sound. And Defago is gibbering with terror, has lost his mind with terror. This voice seems to call him. It seems to sort of say his name. Yeah, it says his name, yeah. And then he suddenly vanishes. It's as if he is just... Uh, pulled out. Pulled He's... out bodily from the tent. Right. With tremendous speed. And yet another interesting thing about this story is how Blackwood gives you very specific descriptions of how things move. And those descriptions really add to the eeriness. So like, you know, I was thinking again about David Lynch. I was thinking about Twin Peaks, The Return. One of the things that makes some of the scariest moments in David Lynch's stuff, in that show in particular, one of the things that makes it really scary is that things move weird. So yeah. like that when we see the experiment or whatever, that weird entity in the, the glass, glass box. box. Yeah. The way it's flickering is just like the way it moves. It's like if it didn't move like that, it would be comical rather than scary. But the way it moves makes it absolutely terrifying. And of course, there's the whole Black Lodge thing where everything's filmed backwards. And yeah. That just creates this otherworldly mood. Yeah. The way yeah. things move. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, and, and Blackwood is very attentive to that. And so like I'm describing it and, and then he disappeared out of the tent. Whoa. You know, that's not an interesting thing, but there's this inner action. The outer action is prosaic, but the inner action is, yeah. uh, it's so dense with implication, but those implications are coming in through other sense doors through, uh, the, uh, our the sense of smell. Yeah. yeah. And our sense of hearing and, and proprioception, a sense of like our bodies in space. And it's in that way that he develops this kind of inner action, this unearthly mood that that makes this story a real classic. And so anyway, long story short, Defago is taken. He shouts something as he's taken away. He's, he exclaims a very peculiar thing, doesn't he? Yes. The thing that really freaks out Simpson is not only that Defago has been pulled violently from their tent by some unseen, smelt and heard, but unseen force or entity. But what really freaks him out is where he hears Defago's voice, but he's hearing it as if the, the sound source is being violently and with immense speed raised up far above the level of the forest. Right. Like the voice suddenly is coming from hundreds of feet in the air and disappearing fast, like Doppler shifting as it goes fly, like audibly flying through the air. And what he hears as this voice trails away is, oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire. Oh, oh, this height and fiery speed. And I know I've I've read that line in another show. It might have been the it might have been the Lovecraft episode actually, um, talking about how one of the things that you can do in weird fiction is you can have something that on its own isn't scary. So I bet nobody listening to my voice now shuddered in terror to hear me reading the line about the fiery speed. It's not the thing itself that's scary. It's, it's the implications. It's yeah. the yeah. It's the kind of imaginal echoes of what it what is being said. This fiery speed. I mean, you could just dwell on that for a minute and it gets pretty scary. It's like he's being taken through the air so fast that he's burning up. But also it's that this thing is giving him something. This thing is giving him these feet, these new feet. And um, I mean, it all comes, it doesn't become clearer, but 
the mystery is kind of um, elaborated uh, later on when Simpson wakes up and well, once he manages, he, he musters the courage to get out of the tent. He starts looking for his friend and he finds, strangely enough, because he heard him trailing off into the sky, he finds tracks. He finds does he find Defago's tracks first or the Wendigo's tracks? Well, he finds he finds them, I think, at the same time because they're running side by side. He sees right. Defago's feet and then he sees the footfall of what seems to be some kind of beast, but it's not a moose, it's not a bear. Simpson is racking his brain trying to think what it might be. And it's actually not described except to say that it's a round track. Right. Almost like an elephant track or something like that. Well, that's uh, what you're given to imagine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then uh, as Simpson follows the tracks, Defago's tracks start to look more and more like the other tracks. So that by the end, his tracks look like a smaller version of the big monstrous tracks. Right. And then the tracks just stop. They just stop. In the, in the middle, middle of, of field. a field of fresh snow. Yeah. And so there's like, they just disappear. This impossible pair of tracks that seem to, you know, they just seem to vanish. So Simpson looks for Defago for a while, eventually decides to uh, get out of there. He leaves some supplies for Defago and makes his way back to the others. They meet up at their base camp. And there, during that night, Defago suddenly returns to them, suddenly appears out of nowhere, looking slightly different. All kinds of fucked up. Yeah. And... um, and it Dr. Becomes, Cathcart is like, oh, well, of course he looks different. The man's been through a terrible ordeal, blah, blah, blah. Right. But then you start to, it, it, it almost looks like it's a, a kind of weird mockery of Defago that's yeah. shown up, a kind of dopp- doppelganger. Well, this, and, is the, this is a great example of where the fairy lore, the kind of yeah. Northern European fairy lore really informs this story because he's like a fetch. A fetch or a changeling. Yeah. yeah, like this bundle of sticks and hide uh, that the fairies leave in place of the baby that they've abducted. Exactly. And it's Hank who figures it out. Hank is absolutely terrified to see Defago. He's not relieved at all. And finally, at a certain point, he just starts screaming like, that's not Defago. That's not Defago. He, he sees the feet. He says, look at his feet. Look at his feet. And then Defago, quote unquote, flees. And so, you know, we don't have the feet described to us. And so Blackwood's really interesting, the choices he makes, that there's some things that are intricately described in ways that I'm convinced Lovecraft got a lot of his moves from reading Blackwood. Yeah. Um, the descriptions some- of the environment of of the natural landscape. There's another story called The Willows, which is all that, just these detailed descriptions of a natural landscape. He's really good. But then when it comes to the actual supernatural content of his stories- He goes blank. Well, he just defers to the characters who don't have the words to describe what they're seeing, but he doesn't do any of the describing himself as a narrator, which is really an interesting uh, choice. And so actually what happens is that Hank starts screaming about the uh, fetch Defago's feet. And Cathcart, who's a rationalist, and the whole time the events are getting stranger and stranger, he's constantly trying to translate everything that's happening into rational language. Right. So, well, what obviously happened was that a moose came and stormed through where you were camped and Defago took off and blah, blah, blah. And and his explanations are really lame. Uh, One of the things that Blackwood does that we might almost say is parody here is – a parody of the clueless rationalist voice that derives its authority from its ability to place itself above the level of your experience. Right. 
Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. He's trying to territorialize this deterritorialized space. He's and eventually to, is defeated. Yeah. I mean, he tries to and is eventually defeated by the sheer weirdness of how things unfold. But yeah. in any event, it's interesting that it, you know Blackwood makes it very clear that this is a kind of defensive rationalism, that Cathcart isn't rationalizing this stuff because he doesn't believe in this stuff. He rationalizes it because he does, because he's terrified. And, and, and a neat little detail of this is when Hank starts screaming about Defago's feet, Cathcart immediately bundles them up so that when the point of view character Simpson looks over, he can't see them. And so it's a neat little moment where it's like it illustrates a kind of panic reaction on the, the rationalist who's beginning to see things that he can't contain. It's almost like a performance of a certain kind of thing that happens in states of trauma. Mm. You know, people who go through traumatic experiences, you know, often have like a really hard time recalling details. Right. Like some right. things are photorealistic and other things are just the mind just decides, nope, I'm not remembering that. Yeah. It's like a veil has been drawn over the most traumatic things. It's not a believer's assertion of the reality of the supernatural. It's more of an affirmation of the weird liminal zone where things that we call supernatural take place. It's more like an affirmation of possibilities. But that's that's something that's throughout Blackwood's work. But And it's neither here nor there for our purposes now, which is just to finish the story. After Defago flees, or the fake Defago flees, the fetch, they return to their real base camp, the cabin where the First Nations uh, guide, Punk, is waiting for them. And there they find Defago. He's returned. So somehow he made his way all, he made his way all the way back to that, to the base camp on his own, but he's, his mind is broken. Um, he dies shortly after these events. He just, he succumbs to his madness. He just, he, and, he can't um, remember anything of his life. Yeah. He doesn't know who he is. His feet have been frozen solid. So he's like, he complains of his burning feet and they look at them and it's because they're, it's, you know, frostbitten dead flesh. Yeah. And also when they, when they get back to the cabin, uh, isn't Punk gone? Yeah. Punk has taken the fuck off. Because he, he can, he knew what was going on. So he, he left and already. He was not going to stick around to, to find out what happens next. <laughs> So big difference between Blackwood and Lovecraft, who drew a lot of inspiration from is Blackwood is incredibly ambiguous about the way he treats the supernatural. And strangely enough, or maybe that's not so strange, Blackwood was an actual believer in the supernatural. He was, I think he was part of the Order of the Golden Dawn. He was definitely involved in occult studies, that sort of thing. He was, he really believed that the modern world needed to recover its sense of wonder. Whereas Lovecraft was a rationalist. So what, what you see in Lovecraft are like vividly detailed supernatural creatures and events. Whereas with uh, Blackwood, um, everything seems to take place in a kind of dream state, which gives it its weirdness. It's its unique flavor of the weird. I think anyone at this point has noticed a lot of parallels between some aspects of the story and traditional European folklore. Not much with, I think, uh, Wendigo folklore as a, exists here. In, well, we should in probably Canada. just briefly say like the Wendigo as it's 
traditionally pictured in as a ravenous a ravenous a demon that takes people over in the depths of winter and causes them to do horrible things including cannibalism and a lot of people think of the wendigo as a personification of both cabin fever the kind of madness that strikes yeah. people in conditions of extreme isolation and also uh, extreme hunger and and like there's refined tortures that the that the wild north can visit upon people who are trying to live there um something i learned about recently uh, I just finished a novel called The River, which is another tale of endurance in the northern Canadian woods. The little detail in there is that you can hunt all the rabbits you want, and you can have tons, tons to eat and still die of starvation because rabbits are completely lean. They don't have any fat. And if you don't eat fat, you'll die. Right. And also, like, there are food stuffs that you like, you're starving, so you have to eat. Like, for example, polar bear liver has, uh, you get hypervitaminosis if you eat polar bear liver, and it makes people mad. And so, like, there's this sort of sense of, like, even when you're trying to survive, even when you have tools to survive in the northern wilderness, you can end up through isolation, through exposure, through your diet, uh, just being driven insane. And so this this nexus of madness and hunger and isolation, all of these things being personified in the figure of this corpse-like entity right. with burning coal red eyes that eats people. And people sometimes say that they're actually real life Wendigos. You know, there was this guy, this horrible story of a guy who, after living a blameless and uninteresting life, went insane. He was on a Greyhound bus. Oh, in, up here in Ontario. I remember Yeah, that, northern yeah. Ontario. Yeah. And there was a carnival barker who sat down next to him, put on his headphones and went to sleep. And at some point, this guy, this mild-mannered, I think a Chinese immigrant who had just been working as a caretaker in a church or something. In uh, Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah, pulled out a knife and decapitated him. And um, the people from the bus obviously like fled screaming. Uh, and he apparently like, you know, held up the severed head and showed them like through the windows of the bus. Yeah, mutilated the corpse. Um, and ate parts yeah. of it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah this really is harsh. bad stuff. But, but like the, this is a, this is Wendigo shit. Like if you want to imagine what is the terror of the Wendigo, imagine something like that. Yeah, it's like sudden irrational madness. And they were traditionally the Algonquin who knew about this stuff would point out that it's only the Wendigo when there were food sources around, when the person made the choice to do this, to kill and eat their children or their spouses or whatever. It couldn't be uh, forced cannibalism. It had to be a kind of madness that overtakes you almost kind of irrationally. Although it, do, it does symbolize just the, the, the cruelty of the Northern landscape. There were very specific conditions for um, shamans to determine that a possession was a Wendigo possession because mainly the Wendigo did not eat people. He possessed humans who then ate people, like just to be more specific about it. But in that in that particular incident, it I read an article the week after that happened, that that guy decapitated the carnival barker on the bus. The murderer, he delivered the Winnipeg newspaper. And it turned out that the week before this happened, a guy had written an article about the Wendigo in that newspaper. Oh, I didn't and know that. And that guy was worried that this gentleman had read his article and that somehow it had worked on him and built up to this uh, unfortunate um, development. And this this plays into what go goes on in the story because Defago starts to fear the Wendigo when he sings that song. 
And I'll tell you something, because I like, I like to hike alone. I like to go backpacking on my own. I try to do it every summer. I love it right now. Like, I can't wait to go. But the minute I'm out there, I hate it. But I, it's like I forget that I hate it uh, when I, when, once I'm out of the woods and I keep wanting to go back. It's a very strange thing that happens every fucking time. There's always a moment at the gloaming at the end of the day when it seems like during the day when you're backpacking on your own or canoeing on your own, your thoughts are like another person keeping you company. But that person that your thoughts kind of embody leaves at the end of the day. And all of a sudden, your thoughts become your own thoughts again. I don't know how else to explain it. And at that moment, your mind starts telling you there's everything that could go wrong, you know, wild animals, whatever. It starts with mundane things. But then all these mundane threats that you're imagining are actually just indexes or symbols of a deeper something that I experience every time, which is exactly the mood we're talking about. Mm. Just this absolute aloneness, this absolute... Uh, the indifference of the environment that surrounds me and uh, the way that I've willingly made a bargain, I've willingly agreed to immerse myself in this indifference. There's always a moment of terror. There's always a moment where I regret going and I tell myself I won't do it again every time. And then there's always also, <laughs> you were talking about doorways and black emptinesses between the trees. There's always a feeling that there's this one avenue of thought that opens up that I know that if I were to go down that train of thought, if I were to let it, you know, if I were to flow down that, that, mm. that road, something really, really bad would happen to me. Mm. Like I always have that feeling. And um, What's, what is that train of thought? If I engage, if I let a certain um, imaginative, you know, temptation at that moment to start imagining certain things that could go wrong, I feel like I would be taking down a path that I would potentially not return from. I don't know if that's true, but it it's just feels that way. It's interesting because that's, I don't know if you know, that's a very small detail of Simpson's experience after Defago vanishes and he goes looking for Defago and he's calling out Defago's name until he's hoarse. And then he, he gets the thought, well, shit, I'm making myself really conspicuous here. That fucking thing, whatever it is that took him, can hear me, then I'm I'm fucked, you know? And then he has a sort of second thought, second tier of thoughts that just crushes that line yeah. of thinking, like it strangles it in its crib because the, the omniscient narrator tells us that if he had entertained that thought, there would be no coming back from that. And it's just sort of like paranoia, you know? Right. The, the point at which when you let paranoia in, you very quickly find yourself in that kind of chapel perilous state that Robert Anton Wilson talks about, where you just, where everything is talking to you, like the world becomes enchanted. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's like in this story, and I think also in any remotely sensitive person's engagement with the Northern Ontario or the Canadian boreal forest, you have this feeling that everything, I mean, everything is alive for one thing. Uh, it's a vast biome, but everything is alive with meaning. And when you start, you know, at nighttime, the significances of things really begins to loom out. Just sounds. All of a sudden, oh God, all yeah. sounds are schizophonic. All sounds yeah. are divorced from their sound source. You can't see anything that's making a sound. And it's, um, as Armour Schaefer put it, a hi-fi soundscape. So sounds stand out against a kind of a velvety background of silence. And so you can hear everything and you become hyper attuned. Everything is meaningful. And the, the, the sounds all start to look like things too. You, 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 you enter a kind of spontaneous state of synesthesia where all these sounds 
are images in your mind. So you're mm. hearing something walking. You're seeing these, you know, paws walking through the, the or you're, you're hear a tree fall. I remember once I was in this one camping site. I don't remember what park it was in, but these two trees fell during the night, about 20 feet away from my tent. It was the most horrific sound. I mean, I knew it was, it, but a tree falling makes a loud fucking noise. <laughs> and to hear that and to be woken by that in the middle of the night, in fact, that night something really weird happened. You, you maybe we can you, return to that. Yeah, yeah. It was, I was visited by one of the white people at night. I don't know if I mentioned that in the white people episode, but I woke up and there was a white. I see it as a female creature, but I don't know. It had no features. It was just like uh, it was lying in the tent next to me. It was like a like a, a pale, pure moon white, hairless creature lying in the tent. And that happened after two things happened that night. The first one was a tree fell, then an owl perched right above the tent and was oh, shooting shit. at me. Yeah, which is always uh, <laughs> famously is a precursor to alien abduction experiences. And then I just woke up and there was the tent was lit up and I turned around and this thing was lying next to me and I fell back asleep. So was it a dream? Uh, whatever. I don't know. Or a hypnagogic but, uh, state or whatever. Who knows? But that's what I, that's what I remember from that night. Um, but like every sound, like you said, becomes pregnant with potential meaning, and potential meaning is more powerful than definite meaning because potential meaning is imaginal. It opens up spaces of possibility, and it's in that space of possibility that you can get lost when you're out there. And in a sense, the Wendigo is kind of in Blackwood's story is just a figure for that space of the possible, that space of the impossible possible you know yeah yeah when i was reading up for the show like we recorded the show a year ago and then uh, lost the files so and we were so bitter about it we have taken an entire year to re-record the show yeah um, i have so, to feel fresh again yeah yeah i'm feeling pretty fresh yeah i'm, I'm having now. a good time here yeah um one of the things that i brought up when we were talking last time is an article by Brent Swanser, who is one of the stringers for the Mysterious Universe site, a very cool kind of podcast and blog of supernatural, paranormal, whatever we want to call it, eldritch, strange experiences. There's a story that he tells of his experience with something very much like a skinwalker. And so I should say, you know, the Wendigo is kind of its own thing, very much a northern demon. But it has some resemblances to the Skinwalker, which is a Navajo demon. So a different part of North America entirely. But uh, the Skinwalker is, in Navajo lore, an evil sorcerer, a human being who has committed acts of atrocity, like things like the killing of a loved one or cannibalism or like done terrible things that bring a curse upon themselves that bestows on them the power to transform into various beasts. It gives them all these sort of supernatural powers uh, and makes them unkillable except with a bullet or a knife covered in white ash. And people regularly have really weird fucking experiences with part human, part animal entities in the wilds of uh, Nevada, in the s southwestern American states. 
in the show that we recorded unsuccessfully before, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about like drawing the Wendigo into Skinwalker lore a little bit because they have one thing in common, which is that you've brought it up, which is that they're actually people, but they're people who are in a certain sense possessed. A skinwalker is possessed by their own magic and a Wendigo is possessed by a kind of, uh, a Wendigo person is possessed by a Wendigo spirit. But nevertheless, there's sort of a similarity of of these things being like kind of Lycanthropes. Yeah, lycanthropes, sort of sort of like werewolves. Uh, but this pertains to what you were just saying about this like white entity, this white form um, that appeared next to you. You know, I was reading accounts of Swansers of various skinwalker experiences, and a lot of these are really blood-curdling. We'll put the links in the show notes. But there's this one story that appeared on Reddit, and, you know, who knows? Um, these are anonymous anecdotes and maybe it's just somebody who's telling a scary story uh that didn't really happen to them but the guy talks about like camping with his friends and being spooked at this one campground and going somewhere else and went to the, a different uh, camp and he writes after a few hours just talking about what the hell happened at the ruins that was the last place they were where they encountered something very strange i went to take a piss behind probably only like 300 feet from our camp this is where everything starts getting a little fuzzy. I remember seeing two dust devils coming my way. And when I turned around again, two of my friends were there and they were motioning to me to follow them. I couldn't help but follow them like I was being pulled behind them in shackles. I followed them for what seemed like 10 or 15 minutes and then I snapped out of it. These weren't my friends. They had bright red hair and my friend's faces and cat eyes. I stopped walking and they looked at me with probably the most terrifying gaze I've ever seen. Monsters in movies are nothing compared to this. I turned around and ran as fast as I could back the way I came from. Um, he and his friends packed up and got the hell out of the of where they were and back to Albuquerque. I'm bringing up all this stuff because I was like, wow, that's mm. kind of like a weird echo of an experience I once had. You know, Alistair Crowley says that when you start poking around on the imaginal plane, if you begin a practice of magic, the neighbors will take notice. <laughs> the neighbors on that plane will take notice, yeah. and not all of them are very nice neighbors. Um, I found this happens, I have found at various times this happens, even meditation. I'm not looking for trouble, uh, but I find myself popping into some kind of weird imaginal plane, and the neighbors start noticing. And to cut a story somewhat short, I imprudently just kind of, I don't know how to put it, except to say I kind of left a door open. You know, there's a reason why in ceremonial magic they banish, you know, you want to close doors between this world and yeah. uh, the, the imaginal or the astral. Um, but I don't think of meditation as being like an act of ceremonial magic. It's just meditation. But nevertheless, there's some stuff that happened in this one meditation where I should have should have banished. I should have taken a, taken a hint, but I didn't. Uh, and I went to sleep. And then in my dream, I was walking around my house and... Uh, it was it, one of those very prosaic dreams where there's nothing about it that's dreamlike. It was just completely realistic. I was just walking through my house and uh, everything is exactly as it is in real life. But I have a funny feeling like something's behind me and I turn around and there is this entity in human shape with red hair. And it's like 
the horror of this thing is that it is an entity in human shape, but it's not human. It's obviously not human. Um, just sort of like this guy's experience of like, oh, it's my friends. Wait a minute, it's not my friends. Um, and with bright red hair, so this entity had uh, paper white skin, like paper white, bright red hair, and completely black eyes, like the eyeball and white. Although the whole eye is black. Uh, and looking at me with a look of total malevolence, a look of hatred such as I've never experienced in life or in dreams. And I was scared like I can't tell you. I was so scared and uh, woke up suddenly and with a very disagreeable feeling that whatever it was, it was going to come back. You better believe I fucking banished after that. And it's weird to me because I remember at the time, like Googling, like <laughs> demon, red hair, white skin. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck was that thing? Um, and you ever heard of red caps? No. They're, I think they're a Scottish fae creature. And um, they were said to wear red hats or to have, I don't know, maybe they had a red hair too, uh, because they would dip their hat in the blood of their victims. Oh, shit. And... Um, yeah, and they were very pale skin with oh, red. Oh fuck! I didn't know uh, about tops. this. <laughs> so, oh shit! Look it up, bud. <laughs> and and these things are all catalogs. Like you find, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, right now, I've started Jacques Vallée's Passport to Mangonia, which I probably should have read years ago. And the whole book is just him pointing out, almost like Claude Levi Strauss, so like a structuralist anthropologist, pointing out the structural parallels between different mythic systems, um, the you know fey folk on the one hand and UFOs on the other. And um, you know, in talking about the Wendigo, you see resonances of this specific First Nation entity uh, with a, a completely different First Nations sort of mythos. Uh, I'm not saying myth in a denigrating or marginalizing sense. I, I take myth seriously. Um, there's these connections, but, you know, and you find people's anonymously reported experiences, uh, their weird experiences have these rhymes and resonance with, with, with each other. Red hair, red caps, yeah. red tops, white, skin, terrible glaring eyes, the, the glare being the most memorable feature of all. Um, shit, man. It's crazy. And, 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 and I mean, there are parallels between um, Blackwood's story and you, modern UFO abduction stories, like the way he's lifted, levitated up off the ground. To get the way he gets picked up is very similar to like what you see in yeah. Fire in the Sky, you know, or that those famous abduction cases in England where the the person was mm -hmm. levitated up to the ship. Once you, when you write from a place of honest ignorance about knowledge you have of the uncanny, it allows you to lay things down in such a way that these parallels become evident. You know, he wasn't writing a ghost story necessarily. He wasn't writing a story about aliens or a story about fairies. He was writing a story about something weird that might have happened. Like, like it's it, it feels like like Blackwood's story reads like one of those Reddit yeah. reports that people write mm -hmm. about something that happened to them. At the end, it's inconclusive. They don't know what they experienced, um, but they experienced something very. Definite and very real. 
And the best way to write about these things is just to stick to what happened or what didn't happen or what might have happened, but just to stick to the actual sensory experience of it so that then you can look at this case and you can see all these parallels with all these other people's experiences. You're not boxing it into a specific definite category that would exclude the other yeah. possibilities, right? So that's why fairies blend into aliens, blend into Wendigos and skinwalkers and sorcery and all that stuff. It's all kind of, you know, it's like like the weird. It's an archipelago of possible entities and, and possible And, and the thing that unites them often is, you know, what we started with, mood. Or the way things move. Right. The meaning of a glare. Again, there's a, it's a, to use that Wagnerian term, there's an interaction to weird experiences. And it's that same kind of interaction that is extremely hard to put in words. Uh, dreams have that kind of interaction, which is very hard to put in words, which is why when people tell you their dreams, it's so boring. Because somehow that is, it's that level that always remains elusive to language. And if you can actually capture any part of that in language, then you are a first-rate writer of weird tales. Now, one way that Blackwood right. does this, something that Graham Harmon notes in his book on Lovecraft, his weird realism book, he says basically, you know, Lovecraft will describe, say, a monster, say Cthulhu. He will give you one tangible thing, say the color of its skin, and another tangible thing, thing tentacles, the, the texture, yeah, bat wings, bat wings, and then another yeah. tangible thing, and he will and he will keep piling on description until it kind of overloads your imagination. Like if you're following along at home, you're trying to build this creature in your imagination from the cues you're getting in the text, but then the cues they they proliferate, they become so numerous, and they don't have a common core, a coherence. There's no point at which they cohere into something definite. And so what you're doing is you're rebuilding in your mind something impossible, something that has a presentiment of a shape. It's almost a distinct shape, but it never quite sorts down into a tangible shape. And for Harmon- Like a, like a chimera or a manticore. Yes. Which yeah. you're, you know, you're using familiar things to, to describe something totally unfamiliar. Yeah. Right? And for him, that's a statement of like the essence of all things in his kind of realist vision, that all things are, you know, things turn their faces towards us, but they also turn away, that they're always receding from us, that there's some aspect of reality that remains uh, forever unassemblable in our minds. Um, yeah. We can never quite put it all together. And so for him, Lovecraft is, is uh, telling us a philosophical truth in the way he describes things. But I can't help but think that Lovecraft got this technique from Blackwood or might have been inspired by Blackwood. So here's the description of the sound of the voice of the Wendigo, which remember, we can't see. We can only hear and smell. It came without warning or audible approach. And it was unspeakably dreadful. It was a voice, Simpson declares, possibly a human voice, hoarse, yet plaintive, a soft, roaring voice, close outside the tent, overhead rather than upon the ground, of immense volume, while in some strange way most penetratingly and seductively sweet. It rang out, too, in three separate and distinct notes or cries that bore in some odd fashion a resemblance, far-fetched yet recognizable, to the name of the guide, De-Fa-Go. Right. 
So what you see there is uh, the kind of impossible juxtaposition of irreconcilable yeah, a opposites. soft, roaring soft, voice. Yeah, a soft, roaring voice that was sweet and terrifying. You know, so it's, there are two ways of metaphysically approaching something like that. One way is to say that these moments, these these phenomena, these encounters show us the kind of like a, a breaking of the first law of, of non-contradiction. So basically this thing is both a roar and a soft whisper. It's both dreadful and sweet. It's both of those things at the same time. And therefore you're in a kind of state of madness or unity or this kind of like leveling down to this pure, indefinable state of the real, which is just exceeds all of our categorizations. Another one, which is would be Harmon's take on this, I think, and probably Lovecraft, is something like there's something there that is very definite. It's not just your imagination, but it exhibits qualities that that are unknowable to you. Therefore, it expresses contradictory things at the same time and yet remains something real. It's two different ways of looking at it. I don't know, it feels like the same in a way, but in, in, in a sense, it's not. Um, Lovecraft's point wasn't to show that, that Cthulhu was impossible. In fact, what he was trying to show was that certain things are possible that we can't yeah. conceptualize at yeah. all. But they're possible. It's about the incommensurateness of reality and perception. Exactly. So the whole contradiction of the soft roar mixed with the, you know, dreadful sweet song and all that stuff mm -hmm. mixed together, that's the epistemological haze that's created by this, the field that's projected forth by this thing that is definitely real, but beyond understanding, beyond human understanding. I tend, as you know, I tend to prefer that take on it as opposed to the kind of Hegelian reconciliation of the opposites on some other transcendentals. Like what's being expressed there is a kind of synthesis of our categories into some greater whole that it all belongs mm -hmm. to. It's kind of like a parts versus whole approach. Right, right. I'm a parts guy. So um, which do you think which do you think Blackwood is? Well, I think that Blackwood was uh metaphysically, if I remember correctly, was a, a kind of um perennialist kind of idealist. So I think that ultimately what he's trying to get at in his stories is not what Lovecraft's after. I think Blackwood was after something like a feeling of the ineffable, the ineffable nature of reality mm -hmm. that expresses itself to us through wonder. Whereas someone like, I would think, Machin and Lovecraft are more after not the ineffable, but the unspeakable or the inscrutable nature of reality itself. Mm. Not, not the, the revelation of an other order of the real, but the revelation that our order of the real is but an island. What is it? Lovecraft said an island of, of ignorance and seas of infinity or something like that. Mm. So I think Blackwood would be, that I mean, doesn't mean that his stories say that, but I think that if he were I think that if he were to write down an essay about his metaphysical beliefs, it would tend more towards a, a vision of the ineffable nature of a higher reality. You see, that was the impression I got from reading this story. Yeah. Because, um, you know, that idea that the Wendigo is in some ways a personification of the life in the North Woods, the terrifying aspects of life in the North Woods. You know, there's um, a number of places in here that really strongly indicate that Defago's relationship to the woods is one of, it's very mixed. You know, he's not quite happy unless he's in the woods. That, in fact, that civilization seems to make him a little bit sick. 
There's a description of him, which I thought was very interesting. This is maybe getting at the racial typing that, uh, of course, would have been very common at the time that this story was written. Um, the characterization of Defago as uh, the Latin type uh, and, and, quote, suffered fits of a kind of silent moroseness when nothing could induce him to utter speech. Defago, that is to say, was imaginative and melancholy. And as a rule, it was too long a spell of civilization that induced the attacks for a few days of the wilderness invariably cured them. I found that very interesting because, number one, the imaginative and melancholy type is that of the kind of decadent poet modi, right? Exactly. And the Latin type, and Latin in this case meaning, you know, French-Canadian. Yeah. As opposed to the Scots, who are the reality anchors for the presumed white and Anglo-Saxon and Protestant readership of the story. But it's interesting because it reminded me actually of Arthur Machen's hieroglyphics. And just mm. like, what's the kind of person for Machen, the person who's the sensitive person, the person capable of enjoying the ecstasy that he sees as the wellspring of art. And it's an imaginative, sensitive person. Right. I thought it was very interesting that part of the racial typing of the, the Latin type is actually of something that we don't associate with a northern woodsman, but maybe something more like a poet. Or some, but the poetry here, the, the, the refreshing of the soul by poetry here, it's the refreshing of the soul with this illimitable boreal wilderness. There's a sense of... Just as with the decadence, you know, this ambivalence, like I often like to say that the unofficial motto of the decadence is, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. You know, there's this is like, you love the thing that poisons you, you know, the, 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 the delight in drugs, in opium and absinthe, poisons that give dreams and visions. Uh, and you know you're poisoning yourself, but the poison is, uh, but if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. The poison, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's worth it. Uh, it's worth it to be damned. Yeah. And I feel like Defago is that kind of character. This is why he turns into the Wendigo. The Wendigo doesn't eat him or doesn't possess him. Well, it does possess him, but that's what the meaning of that possession is to me. That's what he is. His destiny is to be that damned spirit. At the same time... I think in the narrator's voice, you hear a kind of no-nonsense admiration for the Scots. And oh, their, yes. Yeah. And, and, and I find that in Blackwood in general, there's a tendency to psychologize that's a lot stronger than in Lovecraft. Obviously, it's absent in Lovecraft and Machin. Um, in Machin, the things people experience, they don't experience things that they've basically set up for themselves. They experience something that's completely alien that intrudes, that suddenly manifests, and they are left to put themselves back together after the fact. Whereas in, in this story, uh, and in The Willows as well, it's the temperament of the characters that invites the supernatural in. Um, it's very clear. He sets it up. It's Defago, who, as the most seasoned of the hunters, you would expect him to be the best equipped to deal with it. But in fact, he's the least equipped to deal with it because his temperament is such that he doesn't have what Cathcart has which is a strong rationalist bent that allows them to put things in their place and then walk away. In fact, it's mentioned at the end, I think, that Cathcart went off to write a book about collective hallucinations. 
And yes. the, the door to that interpretation remains open all the time, which I think that it tells us something about Blackwood. And I hate to impose kind of intention on authors, but I get the sense sometimes that Blackwood wasn't so much, he believed in the supernatural in a very philosophical sense, in the same way that a lot of the British idealists believed in it. That, like it that, should exist, not necessarily it was something that he experienced. Well, I don't think he, he believed in any of the particulars. He just believed that these types of things point to a kind of overwhelming or idea or transcendental oneness yeah. that, that one could get through rational. You could get to that through rational means by doing, you know, philosophy at Cambridge. You would get right. to the same oneness. I can't remember mm -hmm. the name of the most famous of the British idealists right now, but. Um, no, not Barclay. The, the, the 19th century ones, the ones that William James was constantly sparring oh, yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Whereas in Machin, who is very much someone of that quote unquote Latin temperament, uh, a decadent himself, he, he believes that this type of decadent indulgence in the infinite particulars of the weird and in the reality of the particulars, not just the symbolic meaning of the particulars. What's important to Machin isn't what a monster means, but that a monster is. Right. Like that's what's interesting. Same with Lovecraft. Uh, whereas with Blackwood, there's a more kind of symbolist tendency to translate yeah. these things into meanings. Yeah. And I think that's what's going on with Defaco's like mingled terror and ecstasy, like the sound of his voice being like ecstatic as well as terrified in the sense that, you know, what happens to him is the terrible consummation of um, – his nature, but it's, it's like both something devoutly wished. And at the same time, it's like the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. But the idea that these opposites are unified at some higher level, to, I think is strongly implied in a lot of the scenario, not least of which the idea that Defago and the Windigo become one in the same. And that the Defago we meet at the end, who has no memory, and it's a sort of shrunken version of himself who dies soon after, that that's the mere physical husk yeah. Th that has been sloughed off. The essential man has now found its uh, consummation right. in this unification with the woods. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.